It's different for black boys, harder for black girls Start your own business venture, thrive in a black world Where you and your homies don't gotta worry about getting fired and facing discrimination We are creators, we don't go begging for placement where we are not wanted And I'ma keep it a hundred youngin', we used to be hunted They had us sitting in zoos, so what you see in the news Is really nothing that's new, they really targeting you You hear me talking to you? Race and Rosé is brought to you by your hosts, Deja Staten and Christina Alford. Hello. This podcast was created as a way to address the many racial issues that this country, and specifically BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, living in this country, have been carrying, confronting, living through, basically from the beginning of our history. Which we would like to mark our history is from before uh, the United States was was founded with, you know, the indigenous inhabitants who were here long before and were genocided by the predecessors to the U.S. government. So we will be covering history, current events, systemic issues that are affecting all of us. Today. Today. (laughs) So why Rosé, Pristina? Rosé, because, well, for all of you who know us, we always have a glass or a bottle or ten. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. But not a lie. But not no. Um, close in hand. Um, and honestly, it's, you know, we'll be covering a lot of heavy issues. These conversations are not easy at all. And it's just a little bit more digestible with a glass of rosé in hand. That it is. So Welcome. Black History Month Part 2, y'all. Part 2, Black History Never Dies. Okay, so we are back for our second installation of mm-hmm. Black History Month coverage. Whoop! Oh, she's excited, mm-hmm. <laughs> my friends. Um, today, we are going to deep dive into like the history of the history like, where did Black History Month come from? And, of course, we're going to go on, like, a whole bunch of random tangents because I'm me. This one tastes funny. No? It tastes like champagne, bitch. <laughs> That's what I was saying. This one has personality. What is that? It's because it's a red wine grape champagne. Okay. It's probably, like, a Pinot Noir or, like, a... I don't know. I have a really refined taste. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to note for the people who are listening, um, Christina, literally, her refined taste and tasting notes, this one tastes funny. You know what? She's going to drink it anyway. She's going to drink all of it anyways, because this is what she does. So as I was saying, so Christina, what did we, um, just before we get into what we're drinking today, a brief recap of what did we talk about last week? Yes, uh, just a brief recap. We spoke about kind of uh, black history with regards to what we're seeing in media, what we're seeing in pop culture, what I'm seeing on the agency side and PR and marketing. Um, yeah, all the bull, all the bullshit, all of the play acting, uh, yeah. formative acts of paying homage to black people. Oh, what a word. Homage. <laughs> homage. I'm here for it. Sex. <laughs> um, yeah, and just shit to do and not do, basically. Yeah. Not even during just Black History Month, but just in general. Like, in general, with respect to black people yes. and black culture. Like, things to do and not do. Correct. Yeah. So, if you missed that, go back and listen to 
Um, I guess that was episode, was that two? two? Episode two. Um, numerically, it's not episode two, but we'll let you figure that out yourself as you go to our Spotify or Apple podcast. Um, but that is episode two, part one of Black History Month. Today is going to be episode three, which is part two of Black History Month. And there will likely, but we're not 100% sure, be um, an episode four, which is going to be the closeout of Black History Month and the closeout of season zero before we go like into hibernation or something and plan our plannings. Yeah, planning stage season one and like our takeover. We're going to we're going to become moguls. We've decided. Y'all are not ready. Respect our conglomerate. Mm -hmm. We're here for it. I really wish we could play that song. Yeah, we will soon. That would make me really happy. Okay. (laughs) Um, So today we are drinking. I'm not going to make Christina do this again. (laughs) She um, she did her time last week. Um, But today we are drinking Meinklang. That's the (laughs) brand, the um, vineyard, I guess, which is Austrian. Shout outs to like, I don't know, like 10% or 15% of my my white blood. Um, (laughs) And this wine is called, it's, I think this is actually an orange wine, which we decided while we were at the wine store the other day, which we'll talk about in a second. We went ham. We went on a field trip. (laughs) We went on a field trip this weekend. Um, in furtherance of our podcasting goals and mm-hmm. drinking problems, less mm-hmm. goals. Um, but we decided this weekend that orange wine is rosé. <laughs> so this is an orange wine. It's called, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, but Mulatschak. And apparently that means like a raucous party. Like, it's a party. I think it said like funky, like a, <laughs> like a funky entertainment. Oh, yeah. it's like the, it did say funky in the definition. Yeah, like, I think it literally said <laughs> a funky entertainment is like the direct translation from like Hungarian to English or from German to English. Um, apparently this is like a regional word that's used. So we're getting funky on Monday night here um, as we recorded for you <laughs> this week. Um, and we really liked it. It's a natural wine. It was good. I got some weird sediment on I my like lips at the end. Better. I was like, kind of into it. Christina's not happy about the second wine, mm-hmm. which she's bougie. She's bougie, people. Anyways, that's what we're drinking today. Um, so why don't we, what did we do this weekend, Christina, yesterday? What did we do yesterday? Well, we went on a little field trip to Long Beach. We literally went on a field trip to buy wine. <laughs> which turned into like an all-day outing. <laughs> yes. But yeah, we went on a field trip mm-hmm. to a specific wine store that a friend of mine, shout out to Andrea... Um, who's one of my old roommate Kate's co-workers. Um, she took me a while ago to this place called the Wine Country, and I proceeded to lose my entire fucking mind and <laughs> spent like $800 on they wine. Have all of it. They have all the things. They have all the wine things. It's like a warehouse. It's like a mm-hmm. wine warehouse, but it's open to the public. And they have wines from like most regions um, that produce wine. We're going to walk you through all of the rosés mm-hmm. that we're drinking. Speaking of which, we actually are on like a second bottle of wine today. <laughs> the second bottle of wine. It's called the Cali. And this is a California sparkling rosé. And Christina doesn't like it, but I do. Not really? Um, I really like... I, I mean, like I the like, bottle. I like the taste of it. I also like... I noticed when I was like exploring the bottle, it has like a little Monday motivation. And like today was real trash. And it says, for smashing goals, shattering glass ceilings, or simply getting through the week, it's time to celebrate. It is. On a Monday. It's also time to pour some out for the homies, because 500,000 people officially died from COVID as of like this weekend or yesterday. Yep. Um, which is truly nuts, considering we were told at the beginning of this that it was just going to magically disappear. Yes. It's just the flu. Yeah, just the flu. No worse than the flu. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, pour some out for... 500,000 Americans who have 
passed and all the other people in all the other countries who have passed from this disaster. As we continue on in fighting this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, let's just mark again. I keep saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it um, until someone takes me out. Um, you know, this is impacting um, brown and black um, of color communities disparately compared to other communities. So we recently found out that the uh, life expectancy for white Americans has decreased by one year in the past, like nine months or however long it's been since this like officially started. The life expectancy for black Americans during that same time period has, wait for it, decreased by 2.7 years. Mm -hmm. And that is the first time we've seen something like that since the late 90s, I think 1998. And just to like you know, elaborate on that a little bit. Life expectancy is what is used by the United Nations, for example, um, as a major marker, a major indicator of the quality of life, the overall quality of life um, of a country and that country's ranking as, you know, far as good places to live go, safe places to live, right? Places that are providing, um, you know, safety and overall well-rounded lives for their citizens. So like, we really fucking suck right now, America. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Almost three years knocked off of the life of a black person um, within the past nine months because of the disparate impacts of this pandemic. And that says nothing of all the other brown um, and of color people who have been disparately impacted by this as well. So shout out to our healthcare system. (laughs) Not a shout out to our trash ass healthcare system. Like negative shout out. Negative shout out. To get into this week, so like a super duper deep dive on, as we said, the history behind um, Black History Month. So Black History Month has been celebrated by every U.S. president since 1976, which isn't that long ago. It's really not. <laughs> like the fact that it took 12 years after the Civil Rights Act was passed for Black History Month to be celebrated. Like, fuck y'all. Like, for real? What president was that at the time? I have no idea. I'm, I mean, I'm like a, I'm like a D-list historian. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I think it's interesting that some other countries also have their own Black History Months, which is worth marking. Um, so the UK and Canada are two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did this all start? So originally, Black History Month was Black History Week. Um, And that was started by Carter G. Woodson in 1926. So about 50 years um, before Black History Month became a thing. But I think it's really interesting to mark some of the other stuff that was happening at this time and some of the background. Um, So and by this time again, 1915. So 1915 was the 50th anniversary of emancipation, um, the freeing of enslaved black people in the United States. And I'm making a conscious effort to say, enslaved black people instead of black slaves um, just to mark like who was doing the enslaving and what the the actual situation was of the lack of humanity that these people are allowed to have. Um, But Carter G. Woodson and Jesse E. Moreland established the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, the ASNLH, in 1915. And that would be kind of the foundation that Black History Week and later Black History Month would be built on top of, and today the ASNLH is known as the ASALH, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. So this is the same thing. They're the same thing. The the name has just... Yeah, the name just Semantics. Yes, correct. Which, like, I mean, maybe, who knows? If anybody has any additional information about that, 
Hit us up. <laughs> Actually, no. Again, hit Pristina up. <laughs> <laughs> don't hit me up. <laughs> I don't want any of your feedback. <laughs> um, so the ASNLH, the longest acronym ever. Come on. Mm-hmm. Guys, yes. come on. Carter and Jesse. That's a really long acronym. Anyways. It was founded just a few years after the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, which was founded in 1909. Also in 1915, drum roll please, (laughs) uh, Birth of a Nation, the ultra fucking racist film, um, which was the first movie ever shown in the White House, was released. And this movie was truly one of a kind. And I'm not just saying this as like kind of like a oh, this thing also happened. Like, there is a tie-in. It's three hours long, y'all. Why do you know that, Christina? <laughs> oh. Christina, why do you know that? We watched about an hour of it last night. And what, is, what was it like? Well, there- <laughs> <laughs> I hate to laugh because it's so fucked up. We're about to get into, like, the really messed up history of, like, the history there's, since the film, like, to present. Like, like the, the groundwork it laid for, like, stereotypes and shit. There's uh, like a, t- a ton, ton of, of blackface. blackface. There's no um, actual speaking. So, no sound. Or sound. It's there's like, like a soundtrack to the to the entire thing. And then there's like all yeah, the so there's like and, music. But there's, it's yeah, like after there's the music. Fact, and right? then there's just type. You just kind of read the storyline. You just read the racism. You read it, yeah. Literally and figure And the portrayal of black people. Which, the okay, so like to get into the nuts and bolts of this. Um, this film was shown on February 18th, 1915, um, at the white house and, uh, Woodrow Wilson was president at the time. And interestingly, there's some really conflicting history about like what his stance actually was to birth of a nation, which I'll get into in just a second. But, um, you know, this was racist as hell. And this was six or seven months prior to when, Carter G. Woodson and Jesse Moreland would establish the ASNLH, the precursor um, to Negro History Week and to Black History Month, right? So, like, I think there was some responsiveness um, with respect to Black History Month and, like, the retelling of Black history from the Black perspective in response to this ultra-racist film. So to get into some of Woodrow Wilson's feelings, and, you know, it's interesting, he was president during... Um, World War One, or just after World War One, I, I guess during the end of it, and he founded the League of Nations, which was the predecessor to the United Nations. So, like, he is often lauded as a humanitarian and like a great guy. So, I would like hope that a lot of the shit that was said about him isn't true. But also, it was 1915, right. so he was probably racist as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was quoted as having said after viewing the film, "I hate to laugh because it's like not funny, um, but it is." It's like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it's all so terribly true. Wow. And when we talk about like what was in the film, um, you'll see why that's ridiculous. But also people say he might not have said that and that he, he took issue with the, the film and the misattribution of that quote. So to give you some insight into this film, which again, Pristina and I watched an hour. An hour. Mostly Pristina watched it and I just like <laughs> acted like it wasn't happening <laughs> for being honest. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Uh, even like the black non-black actors just it was a lot it was just a lot well and like the glorification of like confederate white people it wasn't just white people it was like confederate white people it was like 
gun-toting, sleeve-owning white people. Because yeah. this film, it, it took place in South Carolina both before and after the Civil War. So, like, this was about the Civil War. And mind you, 1915 was 50 years after the Civil War. So, like, this was very much like a celebration of, like, you know, the 50th anniversary of, like, the good fight. Um, I'm yeah. air-quoting in my head. Uh, and it was based, this movie, on books about the Klan um, by Thomas Dixon, a super racist author. Um, the books it was based on were called The Klansman, A Historical Romance of the Ku Klux Klan, and The Leopard Spots. And uh, this dude, Thomas Dixon Jr., he was an American white supremacist, um, like a self-avowed white supremacist, and a Baptist minister, because... Boy, oh boy, did the church and racism get into bed with one another back in the day. Yeah, and there was a storyline about the mulatto mistress. <laughs> Jesus. I literally could not. Okay. I can't. So, like, okay, this dude, <laughs> the, the dude who wrote these books that Goodness. the movie was based on, he was literally referred to as a professional racist. Like, that's what people called him. Um, both of his parents were from slave-owning families. His father was a slave owner himself. And he owned slaves estimated at $100,000 in value in 1862. That was a lot of money, lot of money in 1862. Sure. Um, and that was just two years prior to when this dude, Dixon, um, who wrote the books that this was based on, was born. Um, so he was... And, you know, I'm going to give you some, like, serious historical background on this dude because this film... I cannot underscore how important it was to the creation of the stereotypes that we have in place today mm -hmm. about black people, both presently and in the past, right? About black slaves, about free black people in the Reconstruction and Redemption eras following the Civil War and black people now. So this dude, Dixon, he was one of eight kids um, and his older brother was a fundamentalist preacher. So he is from like a family of religious folk and his brother was supposedly one of the greatest ministers of, of the day. Um, and the influence of religion and religious leaders in the creation and development and maintenance of slavery, which is oftentimes in history books re referred to as the, I'm air quoting, peculiar institution, um, is beyond debate. It's like really, really amazing. If you, if you want to see some of the background on this, Google Cotton Mathers um, or read Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning. It's shocking how much the church was used as a foundation um, and really like the structure on which slavery and racism was built in this country. Yeah, that's called Christianity. Ooh, Christina with the deep cuts. <laughs> Sorry, man. I mean... <laughs> Oh, my God. Look, I mean, actually, I want to ask you about this because, like, you were raised Catholic, right? Yeah. Which, so, like, my mom was too, but, like, unlike you, my mom's white mm -hmm. as the driven snow. And I just, like, what are your feelings on brownness, particularly, like... Christians, it, Catholics, they all, they, they basically just killed all Native people unless they, you know... Converted. Converted. So the fact that a lot of brown and black communities and people follow religiously Catholicism and Christianity is actually really crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, it's very much, and like, this is in no way, shape or form meant to be like any sort of um, attack on religion, religion or like no, people who not are religious. At all. It's just the history behind religion. <laughs> yeah. And Christianity. It's very like, it's a colonizers mm -hmm. history. Like yeah. these are religions that were brought by colonizers. I mean, really, if you think about any Brown people pretty much anywhere, in the world, um, 
with the exception of, I guess, like the historic land that is Israel and like the surrounding areas, there aren't very many like Christians who like naturally came upon no. Christianity, right? Like they were no, and I'm, I'm using Christian broadly here. I'm like Christian Catholic. Yeah, no, um, this is yeah. a very white religion. A very white religion. And, like, I also have, like, some close personal ties to this. Like, Christina knows, like, we talked about this recently. I just interviewed my dad's oldest brother, my Uncle Booker, who was born in 1935. He's 85, 86. And my dad's older sister, um, my Aunt Lorene, the other day. And my grandfather, he was a preacher. um, And not just, like, any kind of preacher. He was a Pentecostal preacher, which is, like, for those of you who don't, like, fire and brimstone. Like like people catching tongues and like there was some stuff was like going down. Um, in church. I've been to one service. My cousin, when I was a little girl brought me <laughs> to a Pentecostal service. And I was like, Oh shit. It's, re- it's real. Look, 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 look. <laughs> like, oh. Here. Okay. We'll have like a whole episode or maybe more than one on like the importance of religion to like black people and to black culture. Cause like it's, a big part of the reason that people survived slavery and that people were able to escape slavery and like organizing throughout the civil rights movement. Like it definitely is like a strong part of the community and I get it, but also wild, <laughs> like, so wild. wild. Or like, like black people giving all their money to the church. Yeah. Wild. But it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Pentecostal church is something else. It was um, a form of power and influence. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of why I brought this up. Um, the influence of religion in the creation and maintenance of the institution of slavery, right? Because you have to keep in mind, the people who were creating slavery, pushing slavery, enslaving people, and, and by people I mean black African people, and transporting them across the Atlantic through the Middle Passage, many of whom died on the way um, to the Americas, they were deeply religious. The mm-hmm. colonies were all very religious. They were Christian, they were Catholic, and the Portuguese, who um, did, at the beginning at least, the bulk of the enslavement, um, they were literally flying under the Catholic flag. I mean, they, like there's a cross on mm-hmm. the Portuguese flag of that time period, at least. And, you know, they had to somehow square the fact that they were enslaving humans and that they were so devoutly Catholic, right? What did they do? They dehumanized. They said, these aren't really people. Um, they're black. They're not people, right? Or but if you convert. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's like a funny piece of history, right? So they were like, the black people aren't people. They're heathens. They're savages. And indigenous people, they're not people. They're heathens. They're savages. Like, they haven't found God, right? But if you convert, you're not a heathen or a savage. But then there started to be this, like, it's kind of like woke movement within like the enslaved You'll community. You'll be saved, but yeah. you're still going to be a slave. Yeah. <laughs> Except no, some people in the early days, like in the early 1600s, mid 1600s, I think even late 1600s were freed because they converted, they converted. to Christianity. Yeah, that's because like the whole argument was like, you can't be a slave if you're a Christian. Right. So then they wisened up and they were like, either you can't convert or converting does not make you like, you know, exempt from enslavement. You're no longer a heathen, but guess what? You're still a slave. You're still a slave. Yeah. But um, Jesus loves you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, like, it's wild. Um, Again, like, Google Cotton Mather's um, read stamped from the beginning because it's just fascinating, like, the how intertwined the church and slavery were. Um, And how involved, deeply involved, the colonial superpowers were, both with the church and um, with with slavery. And there's also, like, this interesting through line of um, a justification for slavery being, like, it was helpful to 
the heathens to the savages. Like it was like making them better people. So like, we're doing you a favor <laughs> by enslaving oh you. God. And that was oftentimes linked to, to religion. It was frequently called like, I'm air quoting again, benevolent slavery, right? It benefited the savage and heathen Africans or the indigenous people who were enslaved before the, the, you know, Africans who were, who were brought to, to the United States. So anyways, um, just to, you know, uh, a little tangent, a little t- just a little, 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 little big tangent, whatever. Um, so getting back to Birth of a Nation, though, this 1915 racist ass movie <laughs> that was shown in the White House uh, just six or seven months before the first Black History Week. Um, this movie, in my estimation, at least. And, you know, again, like I'm a D-list historian, but like I'm on the list, I think. You're on the list. I think I'm on the list, like even if I'm like a D-list historian. Um, this movie, I think, is likely responsible for many of the negative stereotypes plaguing black Americans to this day, um, including views of blacks, especially black men, but also black women as hypersexual um, for black men, specifically as threats to white women, as lazy, as subservient, um, as alcohol and drug addicted, violent and violent, particularly towards white women. We didn't get this far, Christina, but there's a really famous scene in the movie where a white woman throws herself to her death off of a cliff um, as a black man is chasing her a white man in blackface i should say um is chasing her and like is clearly gonna gonna rape her because that's what you know yeah black men do um and she would rather throw herself herself. off a a cliff and die before be defiled even that scene that we were watching last night where that family i guess they were visiting the slaves in the fields or they were in there it was like a cousin visiting yeah but even the black people that they were like dancing around yeah perform performance but like just the way that they were dancing and then like the way that the white people were looking at them. It was just like, it was like they were like an exhibit in a museum or like they were zoo animals, which let's not forget black people were We're literally put in zoos to look at. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like very much there was this perform for me. You're not a human. You're an animal. You're a, you know, and that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a later episode. And not performing in a good way. Like, no, but that carries through to today. Like, yeah. And that's part of why people have issues with black athletes being treated the way that they are, right? Like, you're only, you're only good insofar as you're entertaining us. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this movie was wild. Like Christina said, blackface was widely used in the movie. And part of um, the movie, a huge part of the movie, aside from the stereotypes, um, that we haven't gotten to yet is the KKK. So remember, oh. <laughs> the KKK. Let's, get, let's go. Let's get it. Um, Dixon, the the dude, the super, the, the professional racist, um, as people of his time called him. Uh, the original book he wrote was like the Klansman, I think it was called, and this movie portrays the KKK and its Aryan underpinnings as a heroic response to the savagery of newly freed black people during the Reconstruction era, right? And Reconstruction was 1865 to 1877, the period immediately following slavery. And it was a a time period, a 12-year time period of like relative growth and advancement for newly freed black people. Uh, Four million black slaves were freed during this time period, and we saw record numbers of black people uh, being involved in politics, particularly in southern states, um, which was no doubt terrifying to the white people who had been enslaving them Mm. for not one, not two, but 250 plus years. So, I mean, it just, yeah, like the movie's fucked up. Um, and another non-coincidental thing that happened. So this movie drops 
in February, February 18th of 1915. You know what else happened in 1915, Christina? What about Daedra? What, what do you think? Do you have any guesses of what might have happened after a three-hour silent film glorifying the KKK dropped and was shown in the White House? The KKK had its second coming, its second birth. So the wow. KKK was first founded immediately on the heels of the Civil War in 1865. Um, and it was going strong from 1865 to 1871. They were stealing their mama's bed sheets and cutting holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not Halloween. <laughs> riding, riding off into the deep, dark Southern night and terrorizing the living fuck out of black people and killing them and doing all sorts of insane shit. Um, but the KKK, the original KKK was disbanded during reconstruction, largely because the reconstruction government, the federal government that was administering many Southern states, um, many states of the former Confederacy after the civil war was like, yo, y'all got to stop this shit. Like you lost. Also, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Stop. So the dude who originally founded the KKK, he was like, okay, we're done now. Like, literally, this is what happened. He's like, we're done. Um, We're getting in trouble. They're, like, passing laws. Like, you got to stop. Like, you got to stop fucking with black people. Burn your costumes. (laughs) That's literally what happened. Burn them. We're done here to burn the costumes, right? So from 1871 until, like, the early 1900s, sure, there were, like, other terroristic white hate groups. um, But the KKK wasn't as active. 1915, birth of a nation, KKK is like, hey, y'all, we back. <laughs> and like super quickly. What up? What up? <laughs> you thought we were God. We weren't. Um, and like super quickly after birth of a nation, uh, you know, came out, the KKK starts growing in membership again. It's refounded um, at Stone Mountain in, in Georgia. Shout out to Atlanta. Um, oh, and some yeah. relatives. Where from? From Stone Mountain? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> like, are your relatives Klansmen? Um, anyway, so... Um, it was Georgia. It was refounded. Yeah, I lived in Georgia until I was three. Just I outside of Atlanta. That. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they reestablished themselves, and they took guidance from birth of a nation right down to the uniform or regalia as it's typically called with respect to the KKK and the symbolism. So they took on the shape of the uniform. They took on the red cross. They started burning crosses, which was featured in, um, in birth of a nation. They weren't really doing that before that like, wasn't like old KKK behavior. They were now burning crosses in people's, um, yards and they were new and improved. So they didn't just hate black people now. They also hated Jews. <laughs> they hated socialists. They hated pretty much anyone who wasn't a white man or a white woman who was, you know, loyal to white men um, and to, to the Klan. The other really interesting thing that happened. So all of this is happening in the 19-teens, 1920s. By the 1920s, the Klan membership went from like thousands to literally millions um, it ballooned. And the other thing that was happening was the Great Migration, right? The movement of black people from the Deep South um, to other parts of the United States. So to Oakland and to, you know, Philadelphia and to New York uh, and Chicago and all these major cities and not so major cities in the North that had started happening. 
And all these black people were like moving into white neighborhoods and white suburban people who had previously been like, we're not racist. We love black people as long as you keep them in the South. (laughs) They were like, nah, son, we don't want you here. And so Klan membership grew drastically in northern cities as well, which was kind of shocking, um, but like not because you always knew like how, how racist white people were um, are i'm just kidding are, oh, oh she's not kidding don't say you're kidding don't take it back if you don't mean just it kidding. um <laughs> yikes um so just to give you some stats clan membership in ohio in the 1920s was estimated at 300,000 that's a lot of people that's a lot that's a lot of bed sheets <laughs> I, I would like to know a I, linen boom look yes <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Um, I, <laughs> can someone like do the research of like what company was like Sears Roebuck? Like what company like overnight like got a whole bunch more business and got really rich off of all of the sheets that were being bought to make clan uniforms? Because like someone had to be doing it, right? Like and black people in the fields. Just- I mean, not no, but like this was after slavery. I know, Christina. but you know what? Fair point. Because but still like symbolism but no still like black people were picking cotton during this time period like for years and years and years and years and years after yeah so lots and lots and lots of white people in the clan during this time period and it was by no means clandestine right so like the kkk was supposed to be like super secretive like everybody knew like who was Mm -hmm. in the kkk the clan dominated local and state politics in many cases it wasn't a secret it kind of ran things in a lot of towns so i mean still what do we find out there's crazy white people in our government dude like it's like it's still happening okay first off david dukes who's like the like grand wizard like was until recently i think of the clan he had like a direct line of communication with donald trump like just like for the record like they were homies like i just like what it's still happening yeah, I mean, like, all of the, like, super hateful racist conspiracy theories, like, there's still definitely clan connections. Yes. Um, it's wild. It's just... <laughs> Look. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I wish a clansman would catch me in these streets. Like, I am not the one. You don't have to take me out. You don't have to take me off this earth. I'm so serious. I'm not here for it. I never would have survived like a hundred years ago. Um, anyways, this brings us to the thing we're here to talk about, which is Negro History Week, um, as it was called in 1926, which was the first year um, that it was celebrated. And this is in response largely to all of this, to what was viewed as misinformation and a lack of information, just a dearth of information about black African-American history being told by black African-American people um mm-hmm. which we still suffer yes from. yeah and um, celebrating ac- accomplishments yeah and yeah yes i mean i think there's this tendency and like i think we i fall into this as well to talk about like the really like messed up shit that happened because that's what we're fed and like it's true right like all of this really terrible history happened um but there are also things that were accomplished right people there are people who despite Mm -hmm. um all of this you know rose making breakthroughs shined yeah um and we're going to talk about a couple of these people but first we're going to talk about a white person because oh abraham Lincoln. oh yeah i'm like rolling my eyes real hard right now but um 
the reason we're going to talk about him first is because the second week of February was specifically chosen to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Although we don't really know when his real birthday is. Yeah, we don't. And we're going to like deep dive on some Frederick Douglass history, like some weird stuff yeah. um, in a couple minutes. But so the first Negro History Week in 1926 <clears throat> sponsored by the ASNLH. So this is Carter Woodson's. Mm-hmm. brainchild um it was the second week of february abraham lincoln and frederick douglas's birthdays so some background on abraham lincoln on honest abe as i don't they call think a lot of people know about abraham yeah Other or like things. his intentions yeah um i mean and a lot of people know the wrong things right so he was the 16th president of the united states um he was a self-taught lawyer and a renowned orator really good at public speaking and you know he's referred to as the great emancipator which is a fucking lie (laughs) (laughs) we went there right now and go (laughs) but um you know great all-around good guy um (laughs) so he was in fairness a vocal opponent of slavery but that probably doesn't mean what you what you think it means so like he thought slavery was morally and ethically wrong he believed that enslaved africans were humans i'm laughing because like that is the literal bare fucking minimum yeah oh yeah yeah y'all are people kind of (laughs) and you know this is unsurprising like this kind of like dichotomous viewpoint like where it's like oh like you're people and you shouldn't be slaves but like also i don't really care that much what happens to you um his you know, role model was Thomas Jefferson, who famously held the same viewpoint while owning slaves and having sex with his slaves and fathering multiple children with his slaves, with Sally Hemings. So, like, if that's your role model, (laughs) yeah, of course, you're going to think it's, like, valid to be like, yeah, slavery is bad and, like, slaves are people, but also, like, you should just, like, move out of the country, which is what (laughs) Abraham Lincoln thought should happen to freed slaves. So... You know, he did not equate his views on um, slavery, which he thought was bad morally, um, with citizenship. Like, he didn't think black people should be citizens. Um, He, you know, didn't think that um, they should vote, right? Like, he didn't think that slaves should have the same political and social rights, um, even once freed, as white people. He uh, was not an abolitionist. In, in short, his moral opposition to slavery was outweighed by his fealty, by his loyalty to the Union and to the founding document of the United States, the Constitution. So a little bit, like a little, a little tangent here, because, mm-hmm. you know, I like... Yeah, let's do it. Tangents. While the Constitution never utters the word slave or slavery prior to the 13th Amendment, um, which outlaws the institution of slavery... Unless... <laughs> Unless what? Unless. Slavery was definitely on the minds of the founders. And how do we know this? Various parts of the U.S. Constitution protected the institution of slavery, to just like say little it caveat. plainly. Yeah. Um, some historians estimate that there are at least 10 separate parts of the Constitution um, that protect the institution. And, you know, the, the ones that were really made aware of, and by we I mean people who actually give a shit about... <laughs> constitutional history and black history um the three-fifths clause which really generously uh said that black slaves were three-fifths of a person for the purposes of um you know voting in the south because keep in mind uh in the south black 
people, slaves, outnumbered free people mm. in most states uh, by a lot, <laughs> by like a whole lot. Um, the Fugitive Slave Clause, uh, also part of the Constitution, uh, which said you could chase down your, your escaped slave into another state and demand that that property uh, be returned to you, and the Slave Trade Clause, which barred the importation of black people, which is interesting. People are like, oh, look how forward-thinking um, the Founding Fathers were, that they were like, oh, we're going to stop this in 1808. That also means they literally gave like a good 20 years to allow the importation of slaves. And what do we know about slavery in the United States? Very few slaves relative to the rest of the world or the rest of the Americas, I should say, imported, but like very successful, right? Like 400,000 or so slaves imported and they were bred. Um, any children born to those slaves, even ones like who weren't forced to procreate, they were also slaves. So like, why did they need to import slaves after 18? Oh, wait, we were just out here making them in our little slave factory. So, yeah. Um, so there was that. And I just, I think it's important to note, like, Lincoln was a racist by any common understanding of the term. Um, like, he was just, like, racist as hell. Are we going to talk about the 13th Amendment? Do you want to? What do you want to talk about? What is the question that I want to ask you? Um, how does the 13th Amendment still kind of support slavery? Oh, I love this. This is my favorite question. Yes. So... For those of you who haven't watched the documentary 13th, watch it. Um, it's great. But the 13th Amendment was um, passed in 1865, mm -hmm. the year that the Civil War ended, and it was meant to outlaw, as the Supreme Court says, slavery and all of the, air quoting again, badges and incidents of slavery. What does that mean? Anything that looks like slavery. Anything that's acting like slavery, right? Except, here's the thing. The 13th Amendment had this really nifty little caveat <laughs> that was like, oh, hey, 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 you you can um, enslave people. If you can't it's, actually enslave them, but... Well, you can if it's punishment for crime. Yes. Right? So, like, you can't just, like, make people work for you for free unless they did a crime. A crime. And guess what? It turns out that being black was a crime in the United States. Right. <laughs> so what happened following... Um, the Civil War, black codes were enacted. And black codes, they were a predecessor or a precursor to Jim Crow, um, to the system of legal segregation put in place um, in the United States. Black codes were laws across the South that criminalized behavior only on behalf of black people. Um, or they gave differential punishment for the same behavior. So if a white person did something, they had to pay a fine of $2. If a black person did the same thing, they had to pay a fine of $200, right? Or they were put in jail. And if and this you, is carrying on till now with yeah. mass incarceration. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we can talk for like a second about that. But I mean, and the, the thing here also is these these differential fines, and this kind of gets to the, the mass incarceration piece of it. Um, if you're told you have to pay a $200 fine, and this still happens today, and you can't pay the fine, you sit your ass in jail. Or you have to work it off. And sometimes what would happen even is someone from the community would pay off the fine and then the person had to work it off for that person. What the fuck does that sound like, Pristina? Oh, just a little bit of slavery. slavery. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Wild. So that happened. And very quickly after that, um, chain gangs started to become common, right? So we weren't at the stage of mass incarceration quite yet. Um, but in the early 20th century, it was really common for black um, prisoners, black incarcerated people, who were incarcerated even then 
at a rate that was highly, um, highly disproportionate compared to their, their numbers in society, um, they were put to hard labor um, on chain gangs. They were put to work in mines. They were put to work building railroads. They were put to work like in the swamps in Florida. People were dying at higher rates than during slavery. This is a fact. Look it up. If you do not believe me, Google David Oshinsky. He's got some great books on the topic. Um, but black people are dying at higher rates after slavery because of chain gangs and the uh, conditions that they were being forced to serve time in under black codes. And it wasn't very long between um, when this happened and the birth of mass incarceration. So if you kind of look at the arc of history from, you know, even like the 1400s when these ideas about enslavement were brought to America's shores by Portuguese and the 1600s when lifetime enslavement for black people was put into play in the United States and in Barbados and, you know, other neighboring territories and colonies um, to, you know, the emancipation of slaves and black codes arising to Jim Crow being instantiated in the South to mass incarceration. Like, well, let me tell you, my friends, there is a straight ass motherfucking line from the 1400s to today. And it is, I mean, it's shocking. And another book, I mean, just dropping all of the uh, references here. Um, Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, really walks you through like a big chunk um, of that history. And again, 13th, that documentary. So connect the dots. I'll connect dots, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot that flowed from the 13th Amendment. Um, I would call it the the original sin, but I'm pretty sure the original sin was stealing Africans from... (laughs) (laughs) putting them on ships and uh, enslaving them so yeah i feel like the the not original sin just like another sin um yeah so that's the the part of the story that just keeps on giving yeah the 13th is the no white people are the gift that keeps on giving wow look 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 i'm not gonna mince my words here white people are racist and that is part and parcel with this system that we have all inherited, um, which is a system of privilege of power of white supremacy. And it starts with that original sin of black people being taken from their homes and all of those steps. I just walked us through historically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like blatant racism, but just like privilege and not even under like not even acknowledging or understanding your privilege. It's, which is privilege, right? It's, it's like the ability to benefit from something without being aware of it. Without being aware. And, and that's being that's still being racist. You know, white people right on down to my own mother. And like, let's be real, like light skinned people right on down to us, like yes. have benefited and, you know, yes. have, have gotten gifts, if you will, um, from the havoc that racism has wrought in this country from slavery to present. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we have gotten advantages. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that's that's what systemic and structural racism it is. is, right? Yes. Um, it's pitted on the invisible. It's pitted on denial. That's how it functions. Um, that's how it was intended to function. So, yeah, that was like a big-ass tangent, but it was a worthwhile tangent. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was a worthwhile tangent. Um, so just like a couple more things on Lincoln, who, you know, he laid the, the groundwork for the 13th. Um, and he did emancipate slaves. I'm rolling my eyes. Um, but what know, was the reason behind? Yeah, well, I mean, actual... you know what the reason was. Tell us, Christina. Tell the good people of Race and Rose what the reason was that he decided it to. It was a war tactic. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? <laughs> it only applied to the Confederates. 
Okay, so like unpack that. What does that mean? What does that mean? He was only freeing slaves in the was it south? Yeah, yeah. He was only freeing slaves in the south. In the south. And to to put a finer point on that, it was a last resort. Like emancipation for Abraham Lincoln, freeing slaves was a a literal last resort. Ending the institution of slavery was a last resort for Lincoln. So he is quoted. I mean, in his own words, in a letter that he wrote in August of 1862, this is when he was drafting the Emancipation Proclamation because he tried to release it a few times prior to when he did in 1863. And his advisors were like, nah, nah, bruh, it's too mm-hmm. early. It's too early. We so can't he did do it that. twice, basically. We, we can't do it. So he, yeah, he, in August of 1862, he is writing a letter to Horace Greeley, who is the then editor of the New York Tribune, um, which was a really influential publication of the time. And he said in that letter, and I quote, If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union, (laughs) if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. That is... I just got chills. Because like this dude is given like literally people call him the great emancipator. He didn't emancipate shit. Yeah. He made sure the union did not fall apart. Yes. Like black people, slaves were just pawns. Yes. To him. Mm -hmm. Literally. Like you just heard it in his own words. And, you know, like Pristina was just getting at, um, his advisors worried that if he he issued the emancipation proclamation too soon, um, that it would make the union look desperate. And as though it were going through its death throes, right? Like the Union was about to crumble. And he didn't want anything to permanently sever the South from the North. His primary concern, like he just said, was to keep the nation in one piece. Again, what I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. That is so crazy. He didn't give a fuck about us, y'all. Nope. Um, What was his last quote? No, no, no. His last quote, I think I have it um, in here somewhere. But yeah, no, that was not his last quote. But that was, I mean, that was one of his last quotes before issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. He died three years later. Um, But, you know, that's, 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 that's what he was about. He was about that, that in between life that like. He still wanted to take credit for being such a great. Yeah, it's bullshit. No. So, I mean, and the other thing Pristina was just getting at, the Emancipation Proclamation was limited in its reach. Um, So it did not apply to any of the border slave states that remained loyal to the Union. So brief, very brief history lesson here. When the South ceded, like when they separated, um, when they seceded, sorry, separated from the Union, it wasn't all of the South. Like it wasn't all of what we today consider the South. Some states that were the northern part of the South Um, just south of the Mason-Dixon line, um, did stay loyal to the Union. So Maryland, and then further west, Kentucky, Missouri, um, Delaware, uh, not further west. I'm not that bad at geography, I swear. Um, (laughs) Delaware is very close to Pennsylvania, where I grew up. I know where it is. Um, (laughs) they, (laughs) They stayed loyal to the Union. And so the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to those states. So like Mm -hmm. slaves in those states, they were just like, bruh. Okay. Like, 
<laughs> but we're, we're not free though. Right. Excuse me. Um, also, fun fact. So, like, I just like the the four states I just named again: um, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri. Missouri actually had two competing governments during the Civil War. One of them was loyal to the Union, and one of them was loyal to the Confederacy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine living in a state like that during the Civil War? Like. <laughs> Both governments at the same time are just like issuing like random proclamations like all the slaves are free. No, all the slaves are not free. I repeat, all the slaves are not free. Like what, Missouri? Like, what are you even doing? Um, And, you know, moreover, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation also exempted certain states within the Confederacy. So the southern states that had seceded, um, if those states had already been conquered essentially by the union so if those states had already fallen under union control the slaves in those states were not freed um so like really (laughs) the emancipation proclamation was a load of shit it was like a steaming (laughs) heap of crap it did nothing it was symbolic in nature um you know i think it did maybe like convince some more like free black people to um you know, fight for the union over 200,000 black people fought for the union, um, by the end of the day, uh, when all was said and done at the end of the civil war. And I think it did for, for those slaves, um, in Confederate States who were subject to it, um, who heard of it, right. Cause word did travel pretty fast. I think, um, back then it did, you know, kind of embolden them, maybe, um, give them something to fight for, uh, give them a sense that freedom was possible and that it was coming. So, so there was that, but also it was complete bullshit and didn't yeah. really do much of anything at all. And the other thing that's interesting is like, we know for a fact, like, so Emancipation Proclamation came out in 1863. They just like announced it like an album drop. Um, it came out in 1863 and it was not until, uh, June 19th of 1863. Uh, five more than a full month after the official end of the Civil War, aka Juneteenth, um, that like the last slaves were told they were free. Like they literally didn't tell them that they were free. They were just out there. They still were just out here doing slave things. Yes. What? Like how? How is that even possible? I'm pretty sure. Also, like I've heard um, or like Aww. read uh, that there were like other places in the South where like slaves like still like until like 1867 were found, like, believing that they were... They, like, just never told them. Well, I mean, it's not like they had T-Mobile. Like, they were just, like, (laughs) you know... Can't really phone a friend. Yeah, no. Like, they're... Yeah. Yeah. But that... Yeah. So, that's the background on Abraham Lincoln, the non-great emancipator. Um, And, you know, he was the first dude who... um, whose birthday was being celebrated by Negro History Week in 1926, being the second week of February. The other dude who we like way more than Abraham Lincoln, um, Frederick Douglass. Whoop. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Yeah. Um, so Frederick Douglass, he was born. Um, they don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Well, we think 1818 mm-hmm. was the year he was born. Um, he was born a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, we think, we believe, at least biracial, but likely multiracial. Multi. But Indigenous. obviously identified as black. He yeah. was a slave, I say again. Um, his mom they think was part his mom was, they think, black and indigenous, maybe. Yeah. But, like, definitely black. His dad was white, or so we believe. Um, and so Frederick Douglass believed. He, he would talk about it at various points in his life. Um, he escaped to freedom, I think, in his, tw- he was, like, 20, like, in his 20s. Because I think he was born in 1818, and um, he escaped in 1838. And he escaped um, with help from his first wife, who was not yet his wife 
at the time. Like, talk about a ride or fucking die. Mm-hmm. Like, Homegirl, like, brought him clothes and dumped her savings. She was free. Um, the woman who would become his wife, her name was Anna Marie Douglas. And she uh, gave him a whole bunch of money and was like, yo, bro, we got a plan. Like, we're going to, like, dress you up like this and we are going to escape you. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, this is what's going to happen. And it worked. It worked. It worked. And um, in 1838, he escaped. And the same year, they got married. Um, they uh, would remain married until her death in 1882. So they were married for, like, 40-some-odd years. Yeah which is wild. Um, she died from a stroke suddenly in 1882, but she had been like pretty sickly, I think for a lot of her life. Um, so very sad. Um, and again, his, his first wife, Anna Marie Douglas, she was a free black woman, um, living in Maryland near ish to the plantation that Douglas, um, was a slave on and born a slave on his second wife. What do we know about his second wife, Christina? Well, one, (laughs) What's one? One's a big one. Well, Helen. <laughs> Helen yeah. was white. Helen's my mom's middle name. <laughs> white lady. What about her? Oh, God. Oh, God. We're going to spill champagne. Yeah, here. you are going to spill it. I'm not. I'm not you. What? See? Didn't spill. Good job. Okay. She oh, was a... Ooh. Close. That was a great pour. Close encounter. Cheers. Yeah. So, Helen. The suffragist. Yeah, she was a suffragette, suffragist, um, fighting for the female vote, fighting that good fight. Let's go. Um, which, like, girl, she she was born in 1838, which means she was about 20 years, give or take, younger than Frederick Douglass, which, like, you were fighting for the vote, like, 80 years before it would become a thing. How did That's that feel? Crazy. Um, yeah, so they were married two years after his first wife, who he was married to for almost half a century, died. So in 1884, they were married. Um, She was an abolitionist and a suffragist. She was born in New York, where Frederick Douglass would relocate to eventually. Um, They were married for 11 years until Frederick Douglass himself died. They had no kids, um, but he did have five kids with his first wife, which is a lot of kids. kids. I mean, not back then. It wasn't a lot of kids. So like, was a lot of kids. Um, So a little bit more on Frederick Douglass. He was an abolitionist. Um, he was a respected author and public speaker. He was also a women's rights activist, which like, go ahead, boy, like get like, get it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you know, interestingly, (laughs) I always laugh at this because it reminds me of the women's March. Um, but women's rights activists, suffragettes and abolitionists were like originally on the same team. Like they were all like, yeah, like women should vote and like black people shouldn't be slaves. And it was all well and good until the suffragettes realized like very quickly that um, like men and like white men particularly, like were not down to, mm-hmm. you know, support the cause of like freeing black people. So that ended really quickly. And news alert, black people got free in 1865 and women did not get to vote until 1920. So that might've been a mistaken calculation on their behalf. Um, but anyways, So there was that. And really interestingly, you know, Frederick Douglass was not only like this gifted orator and writer, but like he talked to like crowds of white people frequently. And mind you, like this man escaped from slavery. Like he took his entire ass out of slavery while slavery was still happening. Most of his life, slavery was still happening. And he's like out in the streets talking to white people about slave things. And a great example. Speeches. Speeches. Scathing speeches. Speeches. Like Like saying zero. Zero 
was, he was saying wild shit to white people. Um, and I actually think, like... Let's read them. We're going to read it. This is where... And, and this is going to be, like, a little, like, bedtime story for you all. But you have to just hear it. You have to hear it, because, like, this to. is... Tr- this is truly wild. Um, Especially at this time. So I'm going to do a reading. I'm going to do Bedtime a Bedtime stories with Deidre. <laughs> Look. Look. Okay. So I'm going to read this. It's a little long, but like it's worth it. And you should look up um, the actual speech. This is from um, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro, which was delivered on July 5th, 1852 by Douglas in Rochester, New York. This speech goes under several different names, but look it up. It's in um, Frederick Douglass's A Narrative of Life, his autobiography, which you should buy and read. It's amazing. And these are just excerpts. These are just excerpts. Like this thing is like twenty five pages long. Like I, like Christina was saying earlier, as I was like like reading her lines. I was like it. they let him just <laughs> <laughs> they just let him just go. Just like, like these white like, people listen to this for this long. Like they just let him do this. So like background, he he had moved to Rochester, New York, where this speech was delivered about five years before this speech was delivered um, to become the publisher of the North Star, which is an, was an abolitionist weekly like you know newspaper publication. Interestingly, Sean King has tried to revive this, which, like, we'll leave our feelings next. on Sean King out of this. Ooh, she said <laughs> next. Okay. Um, so he, Frederick Douglass delivered the speech in 1852, a mere 14 years after he himself had escaped from slavery. Um, and he starts the speech, which he was asked to deliver about, like, how black people feel about the 4th of July by praising the founding fathers, right? He's like, <laughs> he's like, yo, yeah, okay. y'all. Yeah. He's like... <laughs> I got you. He was like, y'all were about that revolutionary life. Like, you did a good thing. Great constitution. It's really cool. It doesn't even say the word slave in it. Like, it's dope. Uh, And then he proceeds to do a complete 180 and just starts ravaging, (laughs) ravaging the United States. Um, And yeah, I mean, like, literally, like, dragging a living fuck out of this country in a way that I do not think has been done since. So here are some excerpts. Here are some bedtime stories from Deidre. Mm-hmm. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> Why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, black people, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar? and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. <laughs> I'm hearing like a little, like a little. Yeah. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers. Is that how you pronounce that word? Bequeathed? Bequeathed? Bequeathed. Whatever. Bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This how? <laughs> Sorry. This is where... <laughs> This is where he starts to get really wild, and I'm so here for it. 
This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? Don't worry. There's more. Because, are are y'all ready? I'm ready. Get tucked in. Like... (laughs) Brush your teeth, <laughs> do the things, because he's about to, he is about to lay this nation <laughs> down. Like, I like I, I mean, and I would like to say again, like this man, this black man who was born a slave, who had only been free at this point in time, this is 1852, for 15 years, 14 years, is standing in front of a crowd of white people. Yes. Hundreds of miles from where he was a slave. Because, mind you, he was a slave in Maryland. He wasn't, like, a deep South slave. Like, he's literally hundreds of mi- miles, like, two hours by train today from where he was enslaved. And he's out here just reading these white people for fucking filth. Yes. I'll oh. continue. Go ahead. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wails of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and may my tongue cleave the roof of my mouth. I'm guessing that was like a famous quote from back in the day. I don't know. (laughs) To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. (laughs) Don't worry. There's more. Wow. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, The conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Amen. Wow. That hits right now. Yes, it does. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command. And yet no one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice or who is not at heart a slaveholder shall not confess to be right and just. And here's where he's really like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity. 
Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, disgrace, a nation of savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Why is this still true in 2021? It is. Yep. Well, it really came out last year. But like, mm-hmm. why? Yep. All right, Frederick. And nobody has actually had a speech like this. Yeah. Frederick Douglass for president. Like what? Shit is. And we need to have a speech like this. Wild. <laughs> Wild. Yeah, we need to have we need to have all the speeches like this. But like also, I just like every time I read this, I get chills and I read this every year on the 4th of July when I am not celebrating, which I've stopped doing. I don't know how many years ago. No hot dogs. <laughs> I don't need hot dogs anyway. <laughs> and Christina's vegan. So, um, yeah, but no, like, look, you celebrate each your little heart out, heart out 4th of July. But like, I'm not here for it. Like this encapsulates why black people are screaming fuck the fourth mm-hmm. um it's not because we're like really like just like not wanting to be in the united states it's not because we're like screw the government i mean like kind of that but it's like screw the history that you are still refusing to acknowledge screw the things that were happening at the very moment that this nation was founded The equality that you claimed on behalf of only landed, wealthy, white men while leaving everyone else in the shadows and some of those people in the shadows, so many of them in shackles, quite literally. And still. And still. Still. I mean, the shackles, right? Mm -hmm. Freedom for all. (laughs) That's funny. So I think we'll uh, leave you on that cheery note for, for this week, but not to fret. Uh, we will be back with some more, probably some more bedtime stories. Cause yes. that was kind of fun actually. Yeah. Um, definitely some more Rose. We will talk about Carter G. Woodson in a little bit more detail, the founding father of black history week and black history month. And yeah, I mean, I hope you will join us. I hope you're feeling nice and cozy in your bed now and feeling like you're going to get a really good anti-racist sleep after that reading (laughs) by Frederick Douglass. So with that, we will see you. Hear you. You'll hear us next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Until next week, keep your glasses full and remember that racism is garbage. Trash. (laughs) Basura. None of this would be possible without the support of our talented team. Big ups to our producers, Lana Shea and Kate Bataille. Thank you so much. And shout out to Coda the Friend for allowing us to use his music. Whoop, whoop. Whoop. Bye-bye.